Thank you to turn with me if you have your Bible to First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter chapter one. Paul's letter to First Corinthians chapter one. We're going to read a number of uh, scriptures this morning. First Corinthians chapter one and first. Um, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. And also, if you would turn, please, to the second book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then please, in chapter 5, we'll read also from verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view or from the flesh. Though we were once, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and the new has come. The old has gone, and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. God will will bless the reading to us of his uh, precious word this morning. And I'd like to uh, share with you this morning just some thoughts 
from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And I want to try and deal with what Paul says or what Paul brings to us with respect to the the transforming power of the, the gospel. I guess if we were going to talk about this as a subject, we we might entitle it or we might call it true and saving religion. What is it? And do you possess it? True and saving religion. What is it? And do you possess it? Now, I think you'll agree with me that, that in the world, there are many different forms of religion. And there's, there's a kind of religiosity that is found uh, no matter where you go in the world or in the globe. Uh, there is religious activity and there's religious beliefs. And even within Christianity, there can be that kind of uh, religious view or religious understanding of, of Christianity that is, the adherence to a, a kind of a set of rules uh, by which one lives one's life. But that's not really what we want to deal with today. We want to deal with what the Bible calls true and, and saving religion. In other words, in the New Testament, when Paul talks about uh, service to God or talks about religious service, he, he means that a person's heart is in love with God to such an extent that your life becomes an act of worship. It's not just a, a religious observance or a duty or we carry out religious activities because it's our duty or because we've always done it that way or it's because of our tradition. But rather what Paul is getting at here in Corinthians is the very fact that when a person does religious service to God, they do it because they are in love with Jesus, they are in love with God, there's a kind of relationship that's going on between the person and God himself. And that is the, the kind of religion that the New Testament speaks of that's based upon the possession of and the experience of what Paul calls saving grace through faith. You see, I I grew up in a Presbyterian home, and I didn't really become a believer in Jesus, or for that matter, didn't really have a relationship with God until I was 14 years of age. When, for the first time, the gospel, although I'd heard it many times, but for the first time, the gospel message, when it was preached, somehow did more to me than I understood. It, it convicted me of my sins before God. It made me become awake to my, my need as a sinner. And as a 14-year-old boy... I began to understand that there was a God who was righteous, a God who was holy, and that I was not right 
there was something wrong with me and that thing that was wrong with me was called sin. And for the first time in my life, I was convicted in such a way that I realized that I needed God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And so after a gospel meeting, I went home and alone with God, got down on my knees and I simply cried to God. I said, Lord, save me because your son Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And for the first time, I saw the value of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. I saw that he did it for me. He died for me. And that my sins could be forgiven just by simply accepting, simply exercising faith in Jesus. I saw that God would receive me and accept me. I took God at his word. And so that kind of um, saving faith that, that the Bible speaks about is a gift by God. And what I want to share with you this morning, when we want to look at what Paul says about true and saving religion, as opposed to all the forms of religious activity that are in the world that somehow don't do anything, we need a relationship with the Creator through the Savior, Jesus Christ, to enter into that relationship of salvation. So there's religion, it's many, and there's religion much. But really, we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we possess and have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ that brings life and liberty and salvation? There's three aspects of this I just want to share with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And then he says what Jesus has become or what Christ has become. Christ has become for those who are in him wisdom from God. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. There's four things that, that Christ has become for those who are in him. And so the first point that I want to bring to you as a congregation about what Paul says about true and saving religion is, what is the essence of true and saving religion? What is it? What is it made up of? What is the essence of being truly saved and born of God? I think that can be summed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. That gives us the answer to that question. Notice what Paul says. It is because of him, that is God the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus. I want you to focus on the little phrase, in Christ Jesus. You'll notice this, that to be in Christ Jesus is the essence or the meaning of true and saving religion. Now that implies that a person can either be in Christ or out of Christ. 
That implies that when, when God looks at all humanity, at all people, God either sees people in Christ or out of Christ. And so it's this little phrase, in Christ Jesus, this is the essence of true and saving religion. This is the essence of what it means to have a relationship with God. If I'm in Christ Jesus, I'm in a place of salvation. I'm in a place of safety. I'm in a place of life. I'm in a place of eternal destiny. I'm in Christ Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. The Psalms tell us that we were born in sin and our lives were shaped by iniquity, that is, by deceit. And so the Bible tells us that we are part of a fallen race. And when we're born into the world, we are not in Christ by birth. We're not in Christ because we're born into a Christian home. We're not in Christ because we were born into a family that had a church affiliation or tradition. We're not in Christ because we keep the sacraments. That is the bread and wine and the sacrament of baptism. We're not in Christ by good works or by living a worthy life. We're not in Christ by doing charitable things. Paul gives us the answer. It is because of him, that is by God, are you in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is talking about here is a supernatural work of God. This is the essence of of true and saving religion. God supernaturally, God by his grace and by his loving mercy and kindness, takes a person from whatever walk walk or background, from whatever religious tradition, or from whatever socioeconomic place that they come from, God can take that person and incorporate them into Christ. You see, when I was born into my family home in Belfast, I was born as one of Adam's sons. I was an Adam. Adam was my ancestral father. Yeah, I had a father and mother. Of course I did. But you trace the line back through, through Genesis, and we're all related to Adam. So I was an Adam. And I needed to be taken out of Adam and out of my sin and incorporated into Christ. And I could not do that for myself. There is no possibility or there is no power or ability in me or in you to take ourselves out of our sins and out of Adam, the father of our fallen race, and put ourselves into Christ. Because Paul says it is by God that you are in Christ Jesus. This is a work of God. And so we give the glory to God this morning that it's the prerogative of God. It's the, the, the right of God alone 
to take a sinner out of Adam, to take a sinner out of his sins and put him or her into Christ Jesus. And for me, that that happened at 14 years of age on a Belfast home alone with God when I first cried out to God for mercy. And God, in his mercy and in his faithfulness, the moment I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God took me out of my sins and out of Adam's dying, destructive race, and he placed me into Christ. And that's where I've been ever since. I've been in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, let me explain it like this. Paul says that it is Jesus or Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God or righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In other words, the Lord Jesus becomes all that we need. There's no salvation outside of Christ. There's no salvation from any other source. The Bible says that, look unto me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name, that is the name of Jesus, given under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So it is Christ who has become for us the wisdom of God. The world gives us a kind of wisdom. The wisdom of the world is this. Do the best you can. You might hope somehow to receive God's favor. But who can say? But the the assurance of the New Testament and the certainty of the Word of God says this, that if I am taken out of my sin and I'm incorporated into Christ, then I am born of God and I have an eternal destiny and an assurance of the glory. Now that's good news, isn't it? That's great news. That's great news for Kerrang. That's great news for Ireland or for Australia or for wherever. That we can have the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's not presumption. Because the day and the moment in time that I was taken out of my sins and incorporated into Christ, I had nothing to do with it. That was a sovereign work of God. All God calls us to do is to exercise faith. And when we exercise faith in that Jesus died, faith is simply saying, yes, he died, but he died for me. And he died for my sins. And we place our personal faith in Jesus Christ. We are incorporated out of sin and out of Satan's domain and realm. And we are put into Christ in a place of salvation and security. And so Jesus becomes my righteousness. He becomes my holiness. And he becomes my redemption. What does that mean? That simply means this. That when God looks at me and when he looks at you in Christ. What does he see? He doesn't see our sins any longer. He sees that we have been washed clean by the blood of the cross. And that we have been cleansed and accepted before a holy God. And that's great news. Like stand in the presence of God. 
not having to fear, no longer worried about, will God accept me or will God reject me? Have I done enough or have I not done enough for salvation? Because no, that's not the way forward. The way forward is this, that Christ has done it all. Christ has finished the work and that Jesus' righteousness becomes mine. I'm clothed with it. It's imparted to me and imputed to me. Let me put it like this. That old garment of sin and selfishness that we were born into and grew up with. The moment we are incorporated into Christ, that garment is taken off. And we're given a new garment that Jesus himself has made at the cross. And that is the garment of his righteousness and his holiness. And we put it on. And God sees us in Christ. So when God looks at you and I this morning as believers in Jesus, he doesn't see the failures and the past and the sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus in you and I. When you look at the life of Christ, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth and had his public ministry, the Bible tells us that in him was no sin. Neither did he do any sin. The Bible also tells us he knew no sin. So he lived that sinless life, that holy life. And that holy life was offered to God on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died. That holy life was offered to God on your behalf and my behalf. And God accepted that sacrifice that Jesus gave. That sacrifice was himself. And David McClamence's sins and your sins on the cross were laid upon Jesus of Nazareth. And he bore my sins and your sins on his own body on the tree. And he died in my place and in your place. And believing we go free. And the moment we do that, we're incorporated into Christ. The moment we believe. That's the essence of true and saving religion. That's what it means to serve God. We serve God not because we want to have his favor. We serve God and we love him because we have his mercy and his favor as a gift through Jesus Christ. So Paul gives us not only the the essence of this true and saving religion, but he talks about the experience of it. Now, in chapter 4... There's a couple of things that we, we ought to know. Notice this. In chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the first thing that Paul wants to bring to us is this, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That is, when you and I are born into the world and we grow up in whatever culture or background we come from, we come under the, the influence of the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? The God of this age is is the devil. This is Satan. And his mission is to blind the minds or blind the understanding to the truth of the gospel. And how does he do that? He confuses people. 
That word for blindness in, in the Greek text is the word to create a smoke screen. And when you have a smoke screen, you really can't see very much and your eyes become sting, stingy and you become disoriented and you become totally without the ability to know the way forward. And so there's this confusion out there. There's this confusion that we meet day by day in different people. And this confusion is brought about by the God of this age with the purpose of blinding the minds, blinding the understanding of the unbeliever. You see, there's two classes of of people again in the world. We can view them as in Christ or out of Christ, but we can also view them as believers or unbelievers. And what does the God of this age do? It says that if our gospel, that is Paul says, is field, it is veiled in those who are perishing. In other words, sometimes when you preach the gospel to certain people, it's like they have a veil over their understanding. They just can't see. They just can't understand the relevance of of Jesus and the cross. There's a kind of indifference out there in the world where you come and you tell people the good news of the gospel. You tell them that they can have forgiveness of sins. And the response is, well, so what? What does it matter? I live my life. I don't do any harm. Everyone has the right to choose their own religion. They're all the same. And all of these kinds of approaches are evidence of the activity of the God of this age working in our society and working in the world to confuse, confuse people to the simple truth of the gospel. So there's this opaque shade, this feel that's brought over the understanding of, of those that we preach to. See, I want to make this point that the God of this age does, does not blind people's Understanding to the facts of the gospel. Before I became a Christian, before I was saved by the grace of God, I could have quoted scripture to you as a boy. I could have told you the gospel story. I could have told you that Jesus died. I could have told you what the cross was. And many people know that. Some don't, but some do. And many people can tell you about the history and about the events that surrounded the crucifixion or the passion at Jerusalem. So it's not so much the facts of the gospel that the God God of this age blinds people's minds and understanding to. But what does he blind? People's hearts and understanding to. The answer is so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what people are blind to. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Let me put it like this. I had heard the gospel as a boy many, many times, maybe maybe hundreds of times. But at 14, 
When I heard that message for some reason, and I believe God knows the reason because it was his work, it was like hearing the gospel for the first time. There was a kind of light that came on in my soul and in my spirit. And you know what the difference was? Yeah, I knew the facts. Yes, I knew that Jesus died. I knew that he rose again. I knew that you could have forgiveness of sins. I knew all of that. But for the first time, I realized that there was something glorious about the cross. There was something glorious about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There was something glorious about the truth that Christ can and is willing to forgive sins and take a sinner and give them a hope and an eternal life and destiny. And for the first time as that 14-year-old boy, I saw glory in the cross of Christ. Glory that I didn't see before. What is the glory? The glory is the outshining of the love of God. And for the first time I saw the gloriousness of the love of Christ. That Christ Jesus loved me. Me, a hell-deserving sinner. He loved me so much that he died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And paid the price for my sins. And I saw glory in that. For the first time I saw glory in it. That shade, that veil was stripped away. And the light of the gospel of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Dawned upon my soul. And it was like switching a light on in a dark room. For the first time I could see it plainly and clearly. Yes, he died for me. It's enough. What Christ has done at the cross is enough. It's enough for God. It's enough for me. I'll trust Him. I'll believe Him. I'll receive Him as my Lord and Savior. It's one of those moments where you just have the light of the presence of God show you the glory of Christ. I want to say to you as a congregation, and maybe the younger people might know a little bit about this, has any, do any of you younger people, do you do um, algebra at school? You, oh, you do, Logan. You, I'll pray for you later. <laughs> My son's doing, he's doing linear equations. Driving me crazy. And I remember doing these at school. John, I don't know why you did them, but we'll talk about that later. Linear and quadratic equations. And, and, and these things drove me crazy because I am not a maths person. I, I, I'd rather have done French or English or literature or something like that. And I'm still like that. I, I can't count. Um, and so the teacher demonstrated it all, put it up on the board and, and gave us a worksheet. And I went away and I still couldn't get it. And I came back the next week and I still couldn't get it. And then one day she said, well, you know, you do this, this and this. And, some, and it just made sense. It's sort of like, aha, the light came on. I know how to do this. And I was able to work out the equation, and it gave me a lot of, a lot of satisfaction. See, this is something what, what Paul is talking about here. What, what God does in our darkened state, in our unbelieving state as, as sinners, he comes in his presence and his glory by the Spirit of God, and he switches the light on. And for the first time, 
The darkness that fills us is dispelled, and we see the glory of Jesus. We see, yes, the cross. It was for me. He died for me. That's it. It's enough. I accept it, Lord. I believe it. And at that moment, the light of the glory fills us. And we're brought out of darkness into light. And by the sovereign act of God, we're taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. Now, notice this, what Paul does here. You see, the veil that the God of this world places over the understanding is to prevent the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, dawning upon our souls. And notice this in verse 5. Here's what Paul does. He says, I want to take you as as a reader. I want to take you Corinthians. I want to take you back to Genesis. And then he says something like this. Seeing it was God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He has made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to say that the experience of true and saving religion is a creation event. He takes us back to the Genesis story. Just as God in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then notice this. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then God says this. God speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so that darkness was dispelled. Now when you're taken out of Adam... And you're incorporated into Christ. This experience of true and saving religion is described by Paul like the Genesis story. When God commands light to shine in the darkness, the moment that you and I are placed into Christ, it's almost like the light that God commanded to shine into the darkness of Genesis now shines into the darkness of our spiritual deadness. And brings us the light of Christ. I want you to notice that in Genesis chapter 1. It isn't mentioned that God created light. God commanded light. You say, well, what do you mean, David? Well, simply this. That light. This kind of light was before the sun and the moon. And the stars were created in Genesis. This is the light That belongs to God. This is the light of his presence. The light of his glory. And so when you and I trust Christ. That same light of his presence. Doesn't just shine in. It's a work of God in our hearts. So that that light may shine out. And what does that say? That says this. That God does a work in you and in me. Deep within the recesses of our being. That causes his light and his glory and his presence not just to shine in, but to shine out of us to the world. I want to tell you, as a church at Karang, you have that light. You have that presence. 
That presence of God is in every true believer of Jesus. And that light of his glory is able to radiate and to shine out into this area and into this district so that people in Kerrang might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through whom? Through you and through me. It's a wonderful experience. Has everyone ever tried to hide a light? It's difficult, isn't it? Jesus said, be witnesses of me so that you might be like a city that is set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. In other words, during day and night, a city upon a hill is a very obvious thing. So God has given us this light of his glory, this light of his presence. That's consistent with the Genesis story because being placed into Christ is like a creation event. It's the new creation that God has given to each one of us. And so this is the experience of what it means to be in Christ. Verse 7 says this, we have this treasure. What is the treasure that Paul speaks of here? The treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The understanding. It's not just an intellectual knowledge that Paul is speaking about. This is not just a kind of, oh yeah, I know that, I know the facts. It's not just a a kind of understanding that comes through gathering up facts. This kind of knowledge that, that Paul speaks about is the knowledge of an experience. The knowledge of an encounter with God. There's a difference between saying, yes, I know the facts. And there's a difference between saying, yes, I know God. I know him. I know whom I have believed. And I'm fully persuaded. That's a difference. And this kind of knowledge here is is the knowledge that's born out of an encounter and an experience with the true and the living God. And Paul says, we have this treasure, this kind of knowledge, this light This presence of God, this new creation, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, the jars of clay that Paul speaks about here are just simply your body. Now your jar and my jar may not be in the best shape. And some jars are falling apart. This was what Calvin was saying to me this morning. But what I want to say to you is this, that... This treasure, this presence of God, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ lives in each, each true believer. doesn't matter what's happening with the body. That's a present and, a, and an eternal reality. We have the presence of eternity living in us right now. And so Paul, Paul says with this wonderful treasure, this knowledge... The all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, Paul Paul realized that as a preacher of the gospel, when he went to Corinth, he could do nothing. He couldn't cause the Corinthians to turn from their idol worship and from their darkness and their immorality to Christ. Paul realized he could do nothing. But he realized that the all-surpassing, the overflowing, superabundant power of God was available to him because that power was resonant in him as a believer. 
I want to tell you that as a believer in Christ, you have that same dynamic, you have that same power of the gospel living in you because Christ lives in you and he lives in me. And as we, as the people of God, move forward, we are convinced that even though we are pressed on every side, even though we may be crushed, even though we may be persecuted, even though we may be in despair, even though we may be abandoned or struck down or destroyed, we have this all-surpassing power, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God living in us and through us in Jesus Christ. That's something to be thankful for. Paul says, for we are alive always, giving, being given over to death for Jesus' sake. In other words, Paul said, even the hardships that he experienced as an apostle, the difficulties and the abuse and the persecution, did not destroy the reality that Christ lives in Paul. And that Paul was in Christ. You see the two sides of this. In one sense we are incorporated into Christ. And in the other sense. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Lives in us. So that's the experience of what it is to. To have this true and saving religion. The last part I want to bring to you is simply this. In chapter 5. And verse. 14. What is the effect of this true and saving religion? What is it, what is it, how does it affect us? How does it change us? What are, what are the evidences of this true and saving religion that Paul speaks about? Notice this, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, or Christ's love constrains us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. Who was the one that died for all? That is Jesus. And that those who live, that's the believers in Christ, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So to have this experience of being incorporated into Christ... It, it brings to us a, a real radical and a pervasive change. The effect of it is, is like a new creation. The effect of what it is to be in Christ is, is revolutionary. It's transformational. It, it changes us and it changes our lives. And I want you to come with me to verse 14 because I'm going to call this the reasoning of the cross. This is Paul's logic. This is how Paul thinks. This is the reasoning of the believer in Jesus Christ. We're called to make this judgment. We're called to make this logical deduction, this reasoned decision. Why? Because we've experienced the love of Christ. And what does the love of Christ do in the life of a believer? What does the love of Jesus do in the life of one who's been taken out of Adam and out of his sins and incorporated into Christ? That love 
that sacrificial love of the cross that Jesus demonstrated when he died for sinners and died for you and for me constrains me and and moves me and molds me and changes me to come to this place of decision. To reason that if one, that is if Jesus died for all, and he did that, then all were dead. Not only have all sinned, but all were dead in their trespasses and in sins. But notice this, that that same love that motivated Paul, that same love of the cross that motivates us and drives us today, brings us to a place where we decide to, to, to know and to live for Christ. This is what happens We come to a place where we say, my life is no longer my own. I live because Christ has died and rose again. I'm not my own. I belong to another. I belong to Jesus of Nazareth. He paid a price for me at the cross. That price was demonstrated in his love and by his blood. I'm his And this is what I'll do. I will no longer live for myself. But I will live for him. That is Jesus who died and rose again for me. See, here's the effect of true and saving religion. We no longer are these selfish individuals and sinners who live for themselves but we become selfless in Jesus Christ if you were to look at the life of the Lord Jesus he was the most selfless man that ever walked upon the face of the earth in other words all that Jesus did was either for God or for others he set his own rights aside he set his own self-rights that he had every right to have and express as the son of God he set them all aside and he came for you and for me and he came for others and he came to serve God and so this idea of the ego the self is evident in all of us because we're all born in sin and sin demonstrates itself by the exaltation of the ego the exaltation of the I, the self but when we're incorporated into Christ we become like Jesus and we become not selfish but we become selfless and we begin to be moved by love the same love that demonstrated the love of Christ on the cross that sacrificial love drives us and fills us so that we no longer live for ourselves but we live for him who died and rose again for us and you know we live for others the greatest fulfillment I ever had was when I lived in an African village in the slums of Harare and I had no running water and a hole in the ground for a toilet and I lived in a concrete block of a house with African brothers and sisters and I ate what they ate and I lived like them and I had the greatest joy of serving God and serving others and preaching the gospel of Christ they had nothing 
And I didn't care that I had nothing there. I didn't need a hotel. But I want to tell you, what, what was it that, 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 that drove me? That, what was it that, that motivated me? It wasn't a sense of duty. It was a sense that if Christ did all this for me, if I look at the cross and he gave his life and died for me and give it all so that I could be born of God and forgiven, then all I can do in return is to live for him. And when we live for him, what does he do? He sends us into the world to reach others. And so Paul says that this is one of the great evidences of what it is to be in Christ. No longer are we that kind of selfish people that are marked by what it is to be in Adam. We are now selfless people because we're constrained by the love of Christ. Notice the second point that that Paul makes here. He says, so... In view of this, in view of the logic of the cross, in view of this reasoning of the cross, if Christ died for all, then all were dead, so therefore we should live not for ourselves but for him. In view of that, he says, I don't see anyone, verse 16, from a worldly point of view, I don't see anyone according to the flesh any longer. For Paul, that was a big thing. As a Jew, as a Pharisee, before Paul encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul wanted to know two things. Are you a Jew? If you are, welcome, brother. I'll embrace you. Are you a Gentile? Be gone. You're a Gentile dog. I want nothing to do with you. That was Paul's, that was Paul's attitude before he became a Christian. But when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, this is what Paul wants to know. Now that he knows Christ, now that he's compelled and constrained by the love of the cross, and now that he's reasoned out the logic of the cross that he should not live for himself but for Jesus, when he meets anyone, this is what he wants to know. Are you a, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Welcome, brother. No, I don't know Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Doesn't matter why you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter what background you come from. Doesn't matter what country. For Paul, all Paul wants to know is this. Have you met Jesus of Nazareth? Do you have the forgiveness of sins? Do you have the mercy of God? I'm here to tell you. I'm constrained by the love of Christ to tell you about the cross. And so, Paul tries to sum all of this up for us. What are the effects of true and saving religion? And then he comes to verse 17, and he wants to sum it all up. And here's what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, no exceptions, doesn't matter whether you're Irish or Australian or whatever you are, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, if any is in Christ, And he stops there, he pauses as he writes this. There's a pause in the text. And he says this, If any is in Christ, how can I express this? How can I definitively describe what it is to be in Christ? How can I do it? And he thinks for a moment. And the answer is, New creation. That's what it means to be in Christ. New creation. New creation. It's Genesis language, isn't it? 
It's the language of Genesis 1. It's described for us fully that when we're taken by God and placed into Christ, we become a new creation. Our whole cosmos, our whole universe, our whole world changes because we are taken out of what we were. All our sin and our shame and our background is gone. God cuts it off. We're forgiven. And God does not remember any longer. And he places it into Christ. And we're in a new cosmos. We're in a new world. We're in Christ. We're in righteousness, holiness, and forgiveness. And let me say this, congregation. This is true in every case. There's no exceptions. If any be in Christ, new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. See, the problem with many people is this. Many people will say, well, yes, uh, you know, I have a life. I have my way. I have my aspirations. I have all that I want. And yes, I, I, I hear what you're saying about Jesus. I hear what you're saying about the cross. Yeah, you, I'll take Jesus and tell you what I will do. I will, I will incorporate him into my world. I'll give him a place. He can have this place in my world, but I'll have all of this. And you see, the tendency for us is just to incorporate Christ into our world. But when it comes to true and saving religion, what God does, he takes us out of what we were and what we are as sinners, and he incorporates us completely and radically into Christ. You're no longer who you were in Christ. If you believe in Jesus today, you are no longer who you were. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer associated with Adam's fallen, dying race. You're associated with the living, risen Lord Jesus who was coming again in great power and glory and you're identified with him. You're associated with him. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king and you're filled with all the light and the knowledge of the glory of God. And that's a fact. That's a fact. And we need to walk in that and live in that for his name and for his sake and glory. Amen. God bless you. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's just pray for a moment. God, we realize that time is short and eternity is real. We realize that moments and our days are like a shadow and that heaven and earth will pass away but your word will never. We realize that someday we will all stand before you and in your presence. And our only hope and our only claim is this, Jesus died and rose again for me. God, we pray by your Spirit that every heart and every life be searched and that we would be fully assured and convinced of whom we have believed and that we have this gift of true and saving religion, that great salvation through Jesus Christ. We just pray right now, Lord, 
for the younger people in the congregation that their hearts will be warmed and that their minds and their eyes will be opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray for them, Father. We pray that you'll save not only their souls for time and eternity, but their lives for you also. Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege of having your word and preaching your truth. And we just simply ask, O Lord, that all of us would have that sense of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God living in us and through us as we leave this church today. Bless your people, O Lord, and may your name be glorified in Kerrang through this church because you are the great I am and in you do we place our trust both now and forevermore. Amen.